0: I earn a living. This shark will swallow you whole. I value my neck a lot more than 3,000 bucks, Chief. I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. Ten thousand dollars for me by myself. For that you get the head, the tail,
1: the whole damn thing.
0: We've got a problem on our hands on the 4th of July. Mr.
2: Vaughan, Mr. Vaughan, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of the boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. A what?
1: You're going to need a bigger boat.
2: Love to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your name into the National Geographic.
0: Welcome to the Jaws Obsession for an epic 50th global broadcast. As always, we are here to share with you, prove to you, convince you, or just to remind you that Jaws is the greatest movie of all time. This episode will not disappoint. For those of you who gather here to learn a few details about Jaws, That maybe you you may have overlooked or maybe never were made aware of. I can guarantee you, over the next hour, even if you are the most diehard of Jaws fanatics that has followed the movie since 1975 when it appeared on screens, I promise you, you will learn something from our very special guest today. It is only fitting on the 50th episode of The Jaws Obsession to feature a special guest that was not only involved in the making of the greatest movie of all time, but one of the unsung heroes of the production, in my opinion. We pride ourselves here at the JAWS Obsession on finding the little details that might be looked over. And when highlighted, that sheds new lights into the Jaws universe. Some of the bigger names of the Jaws production are well known. We know that Spielberg, John Williams, Dreyfus, Joe Alves, Zanuck and Brown. But Jaws was only a successful motion picture due to contributions by many different crew members and normal working class folks who, in the summer of 1974, they pitched in and helped a Hollywood production survive a nightmare scenario. Right now, on the Jaws Obsession. It is an honor and a pleasure to welcome to the show a man who is critical to the set of Jaws during its production, Mr. Marty Milner. Marty, thanks for jumping in here with us on episode 50. How are you doing today?
2: I'm fine, Ryan. How about yourself?
0: I'm great. I'm great. And I am so excited for this interview. Thank you very much for coming on. Sure. Marty, I, I understand you grew up your summers on Cape Cod. Uh, you You were from Massachusetts, then moving to Martha's Vineyard in the early 70s. Uh, where you would live for 20 years. What was life like on Martha's Vineyard before the arrival of the Jaws production? In
2: 1973, uh, 74, I had been on the island uh, since I graduated from college in 1970. And I had uh, worked uh, mostly as a carpenter and as a laborer. And eventually I got to... Uh, no home construction very well. So the island at that time pretty much was closed down, I would say nine months of the year. Mm-hmm. So it's it was kind of a difficult place to earn a living. I first moved to Oak Bluffs and lived there for a number of years. Then I ended up buying a small piece of land, and I built a little house and was just working in the local construction carpentry business with residential construction. So I knew carpentry pretty well, all the way from framing to finish carpentry. Uh,
0: I, I, that, and that's the skill that you, you were a carpenter by trade. So, yes. So take us back to the spring of 1974. I understand it's around March. You're in a local bar in Eggertown with your friend Bob. And jobs are scarce. Everyone's living off of money from the previous season. And then two guys walk in looking for a commitment. What, what happened there?
2: Part of my existence at that point was I was really into tools. And I was interested in learning all the different tools that you needed in order to earn a living in the carpentry trade. So through the whole Earth catalog and a place called Silver Tools in Philadelphia, I believe, I was always ordering every single tool you could think of. So I had a lot of tools uh, that I carried around in my truck. I had a mechanics body truck, which is one of those pickup trucks with all the doors on the side. Sure, sure. Uh, A lot of of different tradesmen use that. And I had all these different kinds of tools. And that's one of the ways I stayed employed is that everybody knew I could do a lot of different things because I had all this stuff in my truck. Every single Thursday night, most of the people who work for the living met at the Square Rigger in Eggertown, Mm -hmm. which was the local bar. Workers would meet Thursday night, the people from the Vineyard Gazette, different carpenters, plumbers, electricians, landscapers, uh, waitresses, cooks, everybody would would (laughs) meet on Thursday night and have a couple of beers and then go home. It was a way to network and to find out where work might be available and where you might be able to, it was kind of like a community gathering place, right. and a, a place to un, un, unwind every week. Yes. So these two guys came up to me and they said, hey, that guy over there said that you are a carpenter. And I said, yes, I am. And uh, they said, we're looking for somebody that might be able to like help us do some carpentry this coming summer and we want to know if we could talk to you about that and I, and Bobby and I looked at him and said yeah sure we'll we'll talk to you so we sat down i think they bought us a couple of beers and they were saying you know well we're we're going to be filming a movie and we need some people to like who know the local people and who could like make a commitment to work for us for the entire duration of the shoot and right. would you be interested in doing that we need you know a foreman to run the Run the thing so uh, I talked to mostly Ward and Jim Wood about uh, my background and they asked me a few technical questions which I was able to answer easily uh, because I was reading constantly about carpentry and in particular about theater construction and uh, set construction and prefabrication
0: so this is Jim Wood uh, this is Jim Wood and Ward Welton that' yes, you're, that you're and, talking and, to.
2: Yeah, they are. Apparently, the island had already been scouted and they had made the decision to go to the island. So they sent these guys to put the beginning of the crew together. Were they Uh, were they
0: they like uh, associate producers? What were their roles on this?
2: In the organizational chart, there's about nine to 15 different trees in the, uh, organizational chart and all these people at the top and all these people at the bottom. Yep. And, uh, there's a, 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 a title called construction coordinator. Ah. And I think Jim Woods was a cons- technically a construction coordinator and Ward, I believe was the painter. Ah. Although those roles were uh, meaningless after we got going.
0: Sure. sure. Within,
2: underneath them, was the union people, and then underneath them were local hire laborers. So they made me foreman of the local hire construction. So, So I wasn't even on the organizational chart. Nor am I mentioned in the credits of the movie. Nor should I be.
0: <laughs> well, the the credits because and the credits a, and jaws are very limited, and you have to go to the internet movie database. to Well, get they have
2: the, they have to be because right. of the agreements that they have with the unions and different guilds. Right, they're very careful with who they give credit to and why. So I, I never expected to get any credit for it. I was just a a, a guy who had a lot of a lot of tools who knew what to do. I knew how to take orders, and I knew how to give orders, and I could make things happen.
0: You were the first local tradesman hired by the production, then. In that, that,
2: that I knew, of, that I knew of, because right. they had to put they had to put those people together pretty quickly and have some flexibility. The beach scene was like in June, right? We were talking in March. Yeah. That only gives us April and May to build right. those sets, including the two boats.
0: Your official title was construction foreman for set construction of open hires, correct?
2: For local hire, yeah. not open hires. Open hires. Okay, local, local hires, hire. okay. The can... lo- local hire is a category. Local it's hires. It's like casual labor, local yep. hire. It's like, and I was basically the foreman of the construction crew. Oh, this is fantastic. That handled all the, lo- the local hire people. This is... Now, there were... Union carpenters and stuff that did a bunch of other stuff. Yep. Just like there were uh, gaffers and grips. Sure. And that's the formal crew. And those people are well within the organizational chart of the movie in all these different departments. And I was basically, it, I think it went like Spielberg to Joe Wells to Ward Welton and then from Ward to me. Right. So, wow. And this then is Ward fantastic. Had a bunch, Ward had a bunch of other people that he communicated with directly, including Joe Alves, because Ward and Joe had worked before as the art director. And I met Joe Alves a, a number of times because I had to, because he, right. he had a lot of stuff to say about how he wanted things to look. And working with Ward, Ward knew how to do the colors. He knew how to like do the construction. Mm-hmm. He knew how to make things look old. He had a lifetime of experience jammed into his toolkit so he could make virtually anything happen. Uh, we got the call sometime, probably April. A handful of us went down to the boathouse in Egertown and started ordering materials, calling up people, hiring people, talking to people, seeing who we needed for a painter, who we needed for like a laborer, who we needed for like a carpenter. The storyboard. Uh, that Joe Alves had was flexible. Right. It was like there's some open panels there. Sure. And he, he had these blueprints that were like basically not real blueprints, but they were close enough so that we could conceive what he wanted to have built. And then we would try a few different materials and, and like put things together and see which would which would number one be most economical and what could also be painted and assembled so that it looked like what Joe Alves wanted Mm -hmm. because that was important because Joe Alves was working with Spielberg it would all come all the way down to execution after all these other people had done it and then we had to make something that would be close enough so that the camera could pick up what it was that they wanted
0: what would you say how many workers did you have underneath you uh, at the height
2: between 40 and 60 wow 40 Uh, and 60 you have to remember they were building Quint's house at the same time too yes and we prefabbed some of the cuts down in Eggertown and sent them up. And then Bobby was running that crew, and I would go up there and see what they needed. And-
0: That's how fortunate we are here on the Jaws Obsession. I need to remind the listeners that we have someone here, Ms. Marty Milner. Marty was, this is how we are now inside the production. We You can't get any closer than this. And how fortunate we are decades later to have this type of insight. So I want to jump in, Marty, if I can, with... Uh sure. this there's I have 6 major production projects that you were a part of and I'd like to go through each one. Um sure. and I'm not worried about time. This is of uh, the 50th episode so we're we're going to have a lot of fun here learning from you. Number 1, the Amity Beach boardwalk, the hot dog stand, band gazebo and the uh, striped caba- cabanas. Yeah. Uh, you built those off site and then assembled them on the beach, correct? Yes, I think some of the people when you watch Jaws, especially, I mean, as the, when I was younger, you think that that's just the what it looks like out there. But that was an entire set that was brought to the beach and assembled to make it look. Yes. Yeah, and that's a, that was a lot of that was a lot of work, and I just remember uh, seeing some of the behind the scenes photos of that.
2: You see, it's a it's a multitasking thing,
0: right? Because
2: You're... this is an organic or an organically grown project where you have people trying to build it in their heads creatively and then send the orders down to the people who were the mechanics. In many ways, I was not so much a carpenter as I was a mechanic and a juggler because there were a wow. lot of moving parts happening simultaneously and a lot of people changing their minds and a lot of chaos. In that realm is is like people usually walk away from it because they just can't stand the stress, but I was in the thick of it from the very beginning, and I just never gave up. Uh, We made several idiotic mistakes because we were trying to build it too heavy, or we were trying to build it too light, or it just didn't look right, so we had to junk a lot of efforts because we didn't know what it was until we built it and it was right.
0: Any little things you can remember? I remember you uh, mentioned you actually had to cut some corners that a carpenter would see, but the viewing public does not. Can you take us into those well, d- decisions?
2: Sure. The, if you think of it as it's built from the ground up, everything is built from nothing to something. Okay. The first thing we did is we needed a boardwalk. So that was two by sixes that were in platforms that that six people could carry in sections. So we built all these sections of boardwalk so that people could walk to the cabanas, so they could walk to all the other things on the set. So the first thing we did was we built these boardwalks and then we scrambled them. Scrumble is a word that Ward used to indicate the aging process where you would spray gray or brown or white onto new wood and make it look like old wood. So we built the platform of the beach, and then we built all, we built the arcade, uh, and you know where they had that stupid little video game. Yes,
0: yes. the uh,
2: the hot dog stand. Those are just framed up two by four, three eighths inch plywood because they didn't want to pay for half inch plywood. If you look at the hot dog stand roof. And most of you will never look at the hot hot dog stand roof because you have no reason to. Right. You'll see that they're not angled cuts. It's just a drop on bucks. box. So uh, basically the hot dog stand is probably two sections on the long side and one section on the short side. Flat stack them, put them on a flatbed, take them out to the beach, get eight people to carry it from the flatbed, Uh, To the beach then carry it along the boardwalk assemble it And what we put everything together with what you would think they would put together with screws But they weren't they were put together staging nails a staging nail is a it's it's called a double-headed nail It's got two heads uh, on it, and basically you can drive it flush It's not galvanized and it's like it's a temporary nail. It's for staging and What you do is you nail these buildings together with a staging nail and then when you have to take them apart you just take your hammer and you take the top head of a nail and you just pop that nail right out and the building comes apart. Wow! So the hot dog stand, the arcade stand. So they were they, they were, were all put together with staging nails. Yeah,
0: go and, ahead. And then they could be broken down. Or, yeah, and, and they, then and moved.
2: And moved in case suppose the shoot went too long and we got some bad weather, and they had to like take it down and put it back up again. Right. Everything had, had to be made. So it could be taken down and put back up again. And then a finished coat of paint and then a scrumble was applied so that it looked like it had been there forever. Wow. So you you would have a new new paint job and then you would immediately ruin the new paint job with the scrumbling so that it looked faded and worn and uh seagull shit oh. and all all that kind of stuff so that it, it looked like it had been there for a while. Oh, that's now, fantastic. Now the gazebo that had a, a really idiotic, simple design that looked good on camera from 50 feet. But up close, uh, I wanted to route the edges yeah. with either <laughs> a, a Roman OG or a, just a 45-degree to get a little shadow line in there. But Ward said, don't do that. The camera's never going to see it. We don't want to waste the time. Wow. Just leave it square. That looks fine. Now, we put the gazebo together on a level platform in the side yard of Merton and Estherbrook's boathouse including the, the turn posts and yeah. all the slats and everything else like that. We put that all together, including the eight sections of the roof, so that it, it looked right, and then it got approved. Then we took it all apart, and then we waited to get called to the beach scene. If you look at the gazebo in the movie, you'll see there's like a two-inch gap where we weren't, we weren't able to get the roof to fully come completely together. I spotted that gap and I did everything I could to prevent that gap. <laughs> but because of the angle of the beach and the way we had, we had like worked. And also if you look at that gazebo, that's not a structurally sound building by any means mm-hmm. that that could easily have blown over in the wind.
0: All that stress <laughs> just for a few seconds on film too, because the gazebo isn't featured that, that intensely, you know, it's, it's just, it's just a track, no, tracking no, shot, and, right? And,
2: and yeah. And the the, the cabaños, they, uh, you, we took a two-by-three, ripped them in half, uh, just started them up, uh, and, and then covered them with uh, eighth-inch masonite. And if you turn masonite backwards, the other side of masonite has a corrugated surface okay. that looks a lot like, like canvas. So we had the four sides and the roof. Now, the roof is not in sections. Those roofs were all made as a single unit. And they were stacked up in the boatyard, too. Right, okay. And there's a little uh, two-inch two closet dowel, dowel sticking out of the top with a little flag on it. So we had the eight roofs, and then we had uh, all the f- the four sides of the of the cabana, and that was it. Now, that's a very slim – that's a, that's half of a two-by-three. Sure. So – and then inside the building, I, I put more plywood gussets so that – because they would lean easily – I mean it it's Masonite's not an uh, uh, a structural material. Right. So right. it's like it had to be It had to be gusseted inside.
0: So those cabanas actually looks. those were featured in the Alex Kittner beach scene as well as the Fourth of yes. July beach scene. So uh, yes. I, and also in the background of when they discover the body of Chrissy Watkins there's cabanas back there. If it's almost like you guys, yeah. so it was implying we, we, that there was more than one beach around Amity.
2: We had eight primary cabanas, and I think we had four in the hole in case there had been a problem or they needed to have them in multiple locations. Mm-hmm. Most of what we did, the whole thing was continuity, continuity, continuity. Mm-hmm. It had to be matching. Every single cabana had to be identical. If if you look at the cabana, at the top of the cabana, call it the gutter. Every one of those has crown molding with a 45 degree mm-hmm. uh, that's attached to the roof, not to the walls. And every single stripe on the cabanas is exactly in the same spot on every single one of them, wow. just as though it was found. Fabric, but that's spray painted and then scrambled. Okay. Every one of those cabanas is level and plumb and square, and I know because I did it and I checked it, (laughs) and I checked again and again and again because for as long as they were shooting, you know, people are always screwing around, like banging into things, Uh being malicious. Just there's a lot of like just people that are out there and they just do whatever they do. And your job is to make sure that whatever they do, you fix it so that it's back where it should be. Because everybody's trying to like make their little mark that they can say they screwed that up and see it's still there. So it's like there's a lot of that. A lot of that was going on. If you're a carpenter, you know what level Plumbing and Square is and you can sense you have an intuitive sense if something has moved out of line. And the camera would see it and but I had to see it before the camera saw it.
0: Sure. That's and that's why you that that's why I believe your your impact on Jaws is so amazing because your hard work is the result is we don't see your work, you know? That's that's the well, thing. Is good, that you make you good, make it look flawless. A good
2: car a good carpenter is not somebody who doesn't make mistakes. It's somebody whose mistakes you can't see. There you
0: go. <laughs> Isn't that how life is, right? You just try to fail yes. a little a little less, right? <laughs> but, and, and so I thought that's interesting. You're saying the structure was not sound. Now, if we can lateral that over to the Welcome to Amity Island billboard, uh, that was made to only last a few days. You assembled it. and uh, uh, uh,
2: Basically, that's a two-by-four square or okay. uh, rectangle covered with plywood that's made in two sections. And then there are these, call it moldings, to frame it. All right. That's just square wood that's, like, made into, like, call it a cornice. Mm-hmm. And basically, that was put on two sections and put in onto a flatbed truck and then carried up to uh, Aquina. The phone company put in the telephone poles in this field right at Aquina Lighthouse, Right. There's like a little turn around there. and they put the poles in and then we attached the structure. and then there's a little catwalk you can see that's just made out of two by fours that are scrambled. Yeah. that is pretty a shoddy a pretty shoddy little construction <laughs> on the on the cat catwalk. mounted it to the poles. We had to fiddle around with it forever and you can see the joint in the middle of the billboard. It's it's visible, sure. but it's not too visible. It's just there. Now when but they when you so
0: you were there for the assembly then, right? That's you were there yeah. for, for that assembly, and they assembled it with the unvandalized billboard image. Uh, they yes, right? So they filmed. No, Chief, no, Chief, no, it was
2: it was a it was a blank billboard. A blank billboard. When we put it up. Okay. And then they, I wasn't up there when they had this thing. Uh, like a, like a, a billboard screen right. exactly to those dimensions that got delivered. I think it was made in California
0: yep. and then they okay. attached
2: that to the face of the billboard after we were done ah. doing the best we could. I see. And then they vandalized it from there. And
0: then, so, they, okay. So they did the drive by with chief Brody's vehicle yeah. with it unvandalized. Then they vandalize it. They do the scene with the mayor and chief Brody and Hooper. Yeah. And then you have to go in and break that down.
2: Yes, and then it goes straight to the dump. <laughs>
0: straight to the dump, unbelievable.
2: <laughs> well, it, it's like we got no, no place. There's no use for it, They're right? And it's it's done. Right. So it just goes straight to the dump. A great friend of mine that I made on the movie named Nat Bookman, who was a teamster from New Bedford, and that was the guy who drove the flatbed. Now there were two ga- two gangs of teamsters, one from Boston and one from New Bedford. There was only two guys from New Bedford. That was kind of a political plum they tossed to him, okay. even though New Bedford's closer to Martha's Vineyard than Boston is. But Nate Bookman is the guy who, who taught me how to do uh, riggers knots and how to correctly rope down a load so that there'd be no accidents. Uh, Nate Bookman was the guy. He was the right man for the right job who had a very specific skill set. And it didn't matter what we were trucking, he could figure out a way to lash it, how to load it, how to unload it.
0: Do you see Marty, that's amazing. You see, you're highlighting that's just you're highlighting names that i've I've never heard of. Many of our I'm sure many of the listeners have never heard of Nate and his contributions. This is because Jaws, we have to stand back and we have to look that Jaws was uh, there were so many hands involved in making this movie that we've all grown to love. That it, it's it's amazing that you're able to highlight this, and I, I appreciate this information. I want to move on to the shark cage. The shark cage that Hooper is in it was built locally by Jim, uh, a man named Jim Blaine. Correct?
2: I believe so. Yes, Jim Blaine was a, a local metal worker, blacksmith who made a lot of the metal stuff. He got the plans for the tilting metalwork assembly underneath Orca 2 All right. in the boathouse, and he built that first, and then one of his side jobs was to do the uh, the shark cage thing.
0: The scene where uh, Brody pulls the knot, the wrong knot, and the cage comes crashing down, um, and yeah. also during the uh, construction sequence of the cage, you see handwriting and notes on the bars of the cage. Um, on the frame assembly. Would that have been Jim Blaine's handwriting?
2: It, it could have been anyone's handwriting. I, I didn't, I don't remember seeing that, but the cage itself wasn't that well made. <laughs> I right. think it was, it might have been aluminum pipe, but it was like standard off the shelf pipe. It was put together in, the, in I think, six sections, a top and a bottom, and a four sides. It was put together mostly with mending plates. If I remember correctly, if you look at it, there are little mending plates. Those are things you can buy at the hardware store when you want to mm-hmm. do a surface connection to any two things. Okay. I don't think it was a very serious um
0: It, it was just project. a... Oh, I see. So it was just, it was just a copy of uh, maybe the cage that the tailors were using in it, Australia. Yeah.
2: Yes, it, probably so, and I don't think that it. They may not have known that it needed to have that big of a role in the movie till they needed to have it right. have a big role in the movie.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. I love that. I love how Jaws was making itself as it progressed through the production. Yeah,
2: that's the best way to describe it.
0: That's amazing. It, it
2: was lit- it was literally learning to bake wedding cakes from a bag of flour and a handful of sugar and a bride who's insane. <laughs>
0: Uh, so and then going over to Quint's fishing Shack. I know you mentioned it recent, uh, earlier that um, that was another side project that was going on. Um, but I understand there was a tight fist on the budget and building materials for your department to work with. What corners would they have had to cut and what you uh, when you were creating this the elaborate fishing shack site on Menemsha?
2: Well, uh, that was done by Bobby. all right. Uh, uh, he was the lead guy on that. I was uh, in, in that respect. I had my hands full in Egertown with everything else. Sure. And Bobby did that. And I, I was a logistical support. And I also went up and looked at it while it was going on. Basically, that's a balloon framed building which created the largest amount of space for the least amount of material. Mm. And I believe it's board and batten on the outside of the building. And you can literally see through the walls from mm. the inside. It it was like slapdash. At, at the very top of that building, although you, it's difficult to see it. Yep. There was a sh- a copper shark uh, weather vane oh, that was cool. made by Travis Tuck, and it disappeared at some point just before they took the building down. And I've only heard rumors about what may have happened to it, but somewhere out there. There's a copper weather vane that was on top of Quinn's house. Oh, that's fantastic! That Joe Al, Joe, Joe Al specifically wanted that weather vane. I tried to find a way to get it before somebody <laughs> else did, but it was gone before it was gone. Did they? Did they so have? Did they was, have?
0: Was that a, a problem? Or did things tend to walk off uh, the set?
2: A lot of things. A lot of things walked off, and there were there were night watchmen and all kinds of people all the time trying to prevent and every mostly they were trying to prevent vandalism sure because that's where they would lose lose the most amount of money Because right. if something that we had made that was ready for a shot was damaged or destroyed mm-hmm. it would it would throw the shoot off and that's uh, the number they kept saying was it cost $70,000 a day to shoot this and when we're ready, you need to have your stuff ready. Right. And there can't be any excuses. There can't be any problems. There can't be, oh, we need another one. You need to have one in the hole on everything. There's people yelling at you all day long from different directions. Every one of those department heads, they all knew that it, it's the idiots with the hammer that can screw everything up. And we got to make sure that they know what we want. Right. So people are always coming down. And, and there was this really good guy, Nick Charlonzio, who was the auditor who was trying to keep track of the money and he was always coming down and checking, you know, you just took delivery on this. Can you show me where that is? Because he knew how the movie system worked and a lot of stuff that was delivered, never got delivered to the set. Hmm. not on that movie, but he knew, he kept telling me, he said, I know every trick in the book. And he said, I know, <laughs> you know, I know that there's going to be problems. So it's like, and if you know anything you need to tell me because it's, it's like, this can be huge. It can be really a big problem. So was, it can spin out of control, really, right? Yeah. And he was in charge of the money. So okay. he was the auditor on the movie and he was very close to Zanuck and Brown and they were down there frequently enough keeping an eye on things so they could understand what was happening.
0: One more question about the fishing shack, just so you can clear this up. Many fans have lamented on the takedown of the set after filming and, uh, but, uh, because of, um, uh, permit issues and all that. But in your opinion, would that struck, that structure wouldn't have passed the test of time if left alone, right. That would eventually have collapsed. It
2: probably right? wouldn't have made it to the end of August.
0: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the first it stiff breeze, like, huh?
2: <laughs> it was driven into the ground and they hung the structure on the poles and they ran a set of like wooden stairs up into the room, put the windows in. I think there are two circular windows. One of which we got a decal Joel's had made, which was like this yellow stain with like crazing on it. Mm-hmm. And we, we, glue the uh, this film to the window so it would look old. I went up there with Ward at one point and we scrambled a bunch of areas that just look too new. You mm-hmm. can't have new wood. You can never have new wood show up in any movie scene. Right. It's got everything that could possibly show up has to be scrambled.
0: Wow, because it has to be age. because because it might not even be center frame on the movie, but subliminally the eye would pick it up. Is that what we're looking and at? It, here?
2: it ruins it ruins the willing suspension of disbelief. Right. Okay. And and that and that it's like when you see an ancient Chinese movie or something like that, mm-hmm. and you see a two by four, yeah. you know they didn't have two by fours. A thousand years ago. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and if you see it, a new piece of wood in a movie in an old house that's supposed to be this dirty little fisherman's uh, house, it sticks out immediately and wow. your eye catches it. And it's and- like at one point there was a, you probably don't even remember it in the movie, but they're walking through the basement, I think, of his house. Okay. And there's a machine there that they use to chop, theoretically to chop blubber. Yep and there's a, a small orca in yep. the basement. At one point, I got a call at home, and I hadn't gone to work yet, and Ward said, you need to come in early. You know, the, uh, the, there was this basically a foam rubber fish that look like a, an orca well, probably 10, 12 feet long. He said, we need to get this up to uh, Man- Manempsha because they're shooting today. And it needs to be in the basement and take it up there in your truck and don't tell anybody you drove it up there because the teamsters will put a bullet through. Wow. Your <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I drove my truck to the boathouse. Yes. We rolled this rolled this dragged and rolled this, this thing and then put it on the back of my truck. And then I drove it up as the sun was rising up to Manapha and got it out of my truck and got out of there before anybody even knew I was there. I... And then they dragged it inside the building and they cut a slice into it and painted it red so it looked like it had—it was a fish that was being chopped up for chomp
0: and that was and and that 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 is one of those uh little magical moments in the movie that I those were one of the clues that I used to process into the history for the book of Quint.
2: That is probably 8 seconds on on yep.
0: film. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> with with Ellen and Martin just walking through the frame and it's just right yeah. there in the foreground. And but without that Marty, I'm telling you that's one of the clues that's one of the things that I used to process the information when I wrote the book of Quint. And we're going to get to that a little bit later, but I just want you to know that that work that you did just making sure that that porpoise replica was on set. That that left a stamp that resonated all these years later, even into the writing of the book of Quint. That's, and we're going to get to more of that later. But that's what we're looking at here. That's how special you were to this production. And I just want to thank you one more time for for what you did. It's amazing. It's amazing. Everybody wants to know about the orca 2. The Orca 2, we haven't done an episode yet on the Orca 2. We're going to. So um, could you please explain who approached you with the design and the plans for the Orca 2, this replica copy of the Orca that could sink on demand?
2: I don't know who did the plans on the barrel assembly that went underneath it. Yeah. And that was done between, I think, probably Woods and Jim Blaine and probably Joe Alves, Mm -hmm. uh, and and probably Bob Maddy, and maybe Roy Arbogast, too, because they were all those mechanical contraption kind of people that had experience in movie sets that made those kinds of things. And it was a pretty simple thing, but it had to be done in a certain way. And essentially, it was like probably six or seven racks of probably three to five 55-gallon drums that right. could were all welded together, and then you could trip them. Some of them you could disconnect, and it would lean one right. way or lean the other. So basically, it was a platform with 55-gallon drums underneath it that could be tripped right. to let air up. Then what we did is we had the actual boat, the Ark. Right. What we did was we painted the whole boat in motor oil. And then we applied fiberglass and let it set up. Then we peeled the fiberglass off, which, uh, even though we painted it well, it still tore a lot of the, the boat uh, paint and some of the actual boat itself off of the boat. Uh, and then that had to be repaired and restored, so it looked old and scrumbly again. So then we had Orca 1 sitting in the side yard, and we had uh, the mold of Orca 1 inside the boathouse. Then it was a question of measuring and going in, and that platform was level, level, square, and plumb. And then we took the shell of the Orca 1 to where the Orca 2 was going to be, and by just using dimensions from the boat, which was right next door, like 50 feet away... Uh, We would like make that hull and then the rest of the superstructure and everything else, building it all the way up. And then we added the mast. It's a complete uh, reconstruction, an exact duplicate model, boat to boat. You can't tell one from the other. Thing down to like me painting seagull shit so that the the seagull shit on Orca 1 is exactly the same spot on Orca 2. And basically, Ward showed me how to do it. You know, you take uh, a little bit of black, you take a little bit of gray, you take a little white, then you twirl the brush a little bit and just pull it down. So it looks just like poop had landed and dripped down the edge of, of the of the boat. And basically, I, I actually did the exact <laughs> same color match on every single of those things that I painted because Ward said it's really important. You have to, you, it has to be identical. So, and if you look at the top of the mast, uh, there is, I think in your book, you call it the tuna bill. And I have n- I've never heard that term used before. Of course, I'm not a fisherman, so there may be such a thing. Yeah. But there's a little black round dish at the top of the mast yes. that has no wires going to it. It's just on a little a bracket. And that actually is a red plastic dishpan that we got from the local hardware store. It's about six to eight inches deep and probably 18 to 20 inches across. What I did is I cut a circle of three quarter inch plywood and put that at the bottom of it. And then I got another circle and put that at the top of it. And then I filled in the, uh, the little joint around the, uh, where it is, you know, where the plug, the plywood plug fits into the, mm-hmm. uh, the top of the uh, dish thing. Finished that off and then spray painted the whole thing with Krylon black flat. So, and I made two of those and there's a little bolt that comes out of the top of it that was used to attach it to the mast. Nobody ever knew what that was or what it was supposed to be used for. Some people thought it was a light. Some people thought it was radar. Um, (laughs) I I don't, I have no idea what it was. I think it was just something to add um, a visual spot to the top of of the mast Uh, And there's some African country, I have the stamps, they did a celebratory thing of uh, Steven Spielberg's 50th birthday or something like that, and they had a different stamp from each one of his movies, and one of them is a stamp from Jaws that has that stupid little dish tub on it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I always thought it was like a sound making a bell, like if uh, when you're on the lookout and you spot something on the horizon, kind of like what they would do in the old uh, whaling ships. You know, that, yeah, that,
2: that, that. It, it, it's all about imagination. That's right. It's all about <laughs> it's all about not seeing the dish tub. If you see a radar and I see a light and yep. somebody else sees a, a a a fish, you know, detector. Somebody else sees this. Sure. it all add. And as long as you don't see a as long as you don't see a dish tub,
0: there it is, spray
2: painted flat black. <laughs> we're good.
0: <laughs> exactly, Hollywood magic, right there. <laughs> Uh, that, th- this is fantastic. This is fantastic. You're, you're teaching us all the tricks from bird droppings to, uh, to dish tubs en masse. This is great. Could you please explain, uh, could you elaborate on the six breakaway sterns you created for the Orca 2 and also the yeah. interior cabin replica that you created for the Brody uh. vs. Shark scene?
2: They knew they were going to have the shark go through the back of the boat. Okay. They weren't exactly sure how they were going to do that, but they knew that that that, that had to happen. And that was on Orca 2 because obviously Orca 1 had to be somewhat seaworthy. Orca 2, you could fiddle around with it and it would still float. Right. So when we built that, we made that cabin wall breakaway so it could be taken out, put back in again. And again, we used uh, staging nails to mm-hmm. hold it in place. Okay. I never looked really close at the movie. I don't know if you can actually see them or not. In order to do those shots, they weren't sure what would happen when the shark bashed into it. Okay. So Ward, being Ward, he said, we oh, we have to get some sugar pine. A sugar pine is basically, it's a softer pine. It's not like a lonely yellow pine, which you get in the south. It's more like a white pine. Okay. Uh, this comes from out west. It's clear. There's no knots in it at all. It's almost buttery. It has a really sweet-smelling sawdust, and we got like a block of wood made up of one-inch pieces that were random lengths, anywhere from three feet, I think, to like six feet. Okay. Um, and it was just this block of, of wood. So I, we started milling it and building this cabin breakaway wall, We got the same amount of wood in balsa wood. Balsa wood is just a wretched wood to work with. I wouldn't recommend anybody (laughs) ever use it for anything. The same thing, these, it's a block of wood all tied together, different random lengths. And then we had to mill that down to like one inch thick pieces and then glue it together. Now balsa wood is not really a sawdust. It's like a fine dust. Hmm. And it just like coats everything and it gets into your lungs and you're coughing and gagging. It's just a really oh, horrible geez. thing to work with, but it's really light. So um, so it, shat- it shatters
0: thing, easily, right? Is that the, that's the it, method?
2: It, it's it, you'd think it would, but it actually doesn't oh. because it's so springy. Okay. So it bends quite a bit, <laughs> but what does shatter easily is my glue of choice on most of the things that I did when I had to do a gusset that made a difference I always used a little bit of weld wood glue in addition to like the staging nails if it was going to stay there and didn't have to be disassembled yeah. I used weld wood glue any place I could where I knew I needed structural integrity weld wood glue is stronger than any wood I don't even know if they still make it. It's called resource and oil glue. Mm-hmm. It's a water-based thing, and you paint it on, and then you clamp it. And then once it sets up, like uh, 12 to 24 hours later, it's rock hard, and it can withstand almost any impact. The wood will break before the glue breaks. Interesting. So right. put, putting the uh, balsa wood together with the weld wood glue actually turned into a fairly decent product for smashing with sharks. Mm -hmm. So the balsa wood stern, there were three balsa wood sterns and three sugar pine sterns, three cabin side walls of pine and three of balsa wood. I don't know how many sets they actually uh, used because that was done out at sea and I never got to go out to sea because I was the land guy. Ah. I was doing stuff that fed the guys out at sea. (laughs) Although uh, when I worked at Shark City, I worked on the sharks and I saw the barge and, like most of the other stuff, and I built a lot of those rafts that they carried the shark around on, basically styrofoam flotation devices with a shark hanging and then the roof on the top.
0: Did each of the sterns have the orca lettering on them? Um, that for but We
2: made all the letters at the same time. The letters are made out of half-inch masonite.
0: Half-inch which masonite? Is the
2: last, the, it's the last... Thing you would make a maritime uh, <laughs> boat letter out of right but that the word, word said this is it's, he said when we're done with this because we had to special order the half inch masonite it's you normally can't get half inch masonite anywhere right but he it's a it's a movie thing and if you look at masonite it's got a hard surface and it takes a sharp edge. So it looks like metal. Wow. And and, that, <laughs> and and we made, like, I think at least four sets of, of the Orca uh, letters. How many sets? Now, at least 12. 12? Because we had to have two for, well, got, you've got three sterns, yep. and you've got the boats, and you've got to have backups in case you need them. Sure. And if you're, making, you're doing the stencil thing, it's only going to take another hour or two to make more letters. But having to go back and, like, remake them and have them be exactly the same, you're better off just making extras. It's just going to take somebody a couple of hours to do it. Yeah. And then you've got what you need, and it doesn't matter what happens. If you need to throw something together, you got the letters. Amazing. So that's – and the same thing was true with the uh, Amity National Bank sign and a couple of other signs that look like bronze. Mm-hmm. That's Masonite, and we had a bunch of those signs made too – because if they got stolen and we needed to do the shot, what are you going to do? Stop everything and make a new sign? Just hmm. make the damn sign. Right. Make a bunch of extras. And, and uh, But basically, you take, um, after you get the letters and the, and the frame made, it's a half-inch masonite and like one-eighth-inch masonite. And that gives you the different thicknesses. And basically, you mix lacquer with bronze powder, which is old bronze powder. And that gives you one color, and then you take lacquer and you mix it with bright bronze powder, and that gives you the bright bronze look. And we made a bunch of things using uh, bronze powder and lacquer for different things in the movie. And I think on the boat, some of the stuff that you're looking at that you think might be bronze
0: is not bronze. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Fantastic. That's, it's amazing. The Hollywood magic that went into it's m- way more than I actually expected what you're revealing here. There is more Hollywood magic that went into jaws than I expected. I actually thought you guys just ran around to, uh, you know, the flea markets or something and grab stuff, but you're, you're actually saying you had to create some of that, a lot of that from scratch and it looks like the real deal. That's amazing.
2: And what, what that is, is that's Joe Alves and that's Ward Welton. And it's Joe knowing what he wanted artistically and how to set the right tone in terms of material and color, and Ward being able to create it. And if Ward couldn't figure it out or how to make it happen, I would just invent something, and we would try it. And if it worked, that's what it was. Fantastic. So it, it's like <laughs> it's like it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to look right for a couple of seconds.
0: So let's let's move on to the final thing. Let's talk about the three mechanical sharks used in the movie. Uh, plus plus one head for the explosive ending, right? Uh, Could you please explain the construction materials? This is important because this is going to lead to a very main point that I want to make that's going to lead up to this. Uh, Could you please explain the construction materials each shark was made of?
2: Well, what it was was an articulated contraption that was like steel pipes, so it could bend, Okay. a certain amount. The bending was controlled by a set of tubes that were either pneumatic or hydraulic, and they had they had to send out at one point to get different sized rams because the ones they had weren't big enough. Okay. Because they had a lot of things, they and then they mounted each of these. There's a clamp in the center of the articulated mechanism that clamps to the sea sled below, mm-hmm. which is where all the tubes go to, and how they articulate the shark, whether it goes up or down, and whether or not it like looks cockeyed in the water and all that stuff. So there's this there's this platform with an arm, that connects to the shark. Right. Then the shark has a call it an inner exoskeleton for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. This exoskeleton is attached to about four inches of high-density flexible foam. Foam. Yeah, like polyurethane foam. Okay. It's a very small bubble, very dense foam. Uh, I've never seen it anywhere else. Um, It's hard to describe it. It's almost, if you can imagine, a cross between muscle and blubber. And that's from the
0: mold? That, that was taken from a mold of yes. the one shark, right? So they all have a similar yes. shape?
2: Yes. Yes. And, that, and, that's the, and then that is attached on the inside to the articulated skeleton. Okay. Then the outside of the shark is covered with four-way ripstop nylon, which is a nylon, but like it's stretchy. Okay. And, and you can pull it in four or five different directions, and it stretches all the time in all those directions. And it's pretty expensive stuff. Hmm. So that is covers the outside, and that's applied with a flexible epoxy. Then you – I didn't actually make the sharks. I did repair the sharks. Yes. Uh, but I, I know how they were made because that's how I had to repair it. Right. And Rory Arbogast, who is the guy who did – the sharks along with Bob Maddy and Joe Wells, but Bob Maddy designed the sharks with Joe Wells. Roy Arbogast figured out the materials and how to make it all work in close conjunction with uh, Bob Maddy, and then Roy Arbogast showed me how to repair the shark and and Ward added like his expertise with materials so that we could actually fix a broken shark.
0: The pneumatic rams the system up for the shark movement caused tears and damage to the skin and foam. Could you elaborate on what Ward Welton showed you on how to fix the shark, For because it was taking daily damage, these sharks were taking daily damage in the routine of filming, right?
2: Well, there it's, it's, it's funny. They were taking daily damage, but there also was chronic long-term damage. Basically, that assembly on the articulated mechanism was immersed in water every day and taken out of water. It was a good design. looked beautiful on paper, and it was a beautiful fish on dry land. That's all well and good. As soon as you start to move it a foot or two feet or open up the mouth, if there's no stops in the mechanical mechanism, the shell of the fish is going to rip. It's not a design flaw. It's like who would think to do that? Right. Who would think, where do we stop? When will it rip? They, they didn't have any specs on that because it had never existed before sure. on the face of the planet. So they would try to open the mouth, and they would open the mouth, but the hydraulic ram sometimes would chatter or the control wasn't specifically or exactly tuned so that it could move slowly, so it would move too fast, and it would tear this big rip on the side of the mouth, so it would look like the shark was actually laughing. Oh, And then (laughs) that would have to be fixed. Meanwhile, the whole time, salt water and microorganisms and everything else that's floating around out in the ocean is getting into the workings of this plastic fish. And essentially, it starts to sag, it starts to droop. Where it's attached to the skeleton Mm -hmm. might slip a little bit, just like skin slipping off, you know, a little bone. It's it's like, how do you keep this thing together so that you can finish the movie? They realized they had it to repair the thing. Now, in the history of the movie, at that point, we had finished the beach scene, and they basically had to get whatever shark scenes they were going to get, they had to get those to work. So I moved from the boathouse in Norton and Estabrooks in Inkertown over to Shark City. And then I started working on the sharks and also doing a bunch of independent things that needed to be done. Plus going back and forth of the boathouse. We were doing a bunch of other like side projects for different people, too.
0: Would there be like a lot of late nights fixing the shark, uh, doing your patchwork for the next morning for filming?
2: Sometimes I would uh, I would usually be there between eight nine o'clock in the morning, and then I would work till four or five o'clock at night. Then I would go grab a sandwich someplace, then go back to the boathouse. Then they deliver the broken fish. Basically, I had to work as long as I had to work to get the thing uh, repaired, and also to have the epoxy dry so that it would work the next morning. Uh, and then I had to sit around and wait for that, and then finish the repair. So essentially, if you can imagine taking a piece of – if you ever use a piece of uh, insulation board to insulate a house that's like two inches thick, and you take a razor knife and you cut into that, imagine that that is flexible foam instead. Essentially, I would take the rip and I would take a razor knife and I would cut away anything that was not sound and basically like a scalpel, and remove any rough flesh. Then I would uh, wipe it down with rubbing alcohol Mm -hmm. and let it dry. Then I would uh, basically take a series of clamps or any way I could, hold that together so that I could see that it would actually come together. Then I'd let it go loose again, and then I would paint the whole wound on both sides with flexible epoxy, then clamp the thing back together again so that the epoxy squeezed out. You'll wipe that off.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then there's a thing called a hog ring plier. And a hog ring plier basically is a set of pliers where you can take a little half moon crescent of uh, sharpened wire and you put it into this plier and you squeeze it together. Mm-hmm. And the two prongs come together it's kind of like a surgical staple okay so i would hold the wound together with those surgical staples on the inside and on the outside and paint that with epoxy then i take a pair of die after the epoxy sets up which is usually an hour and a half to 2 hours it's not fully cured but it's cured enough i would then cut the staples and pull the staples out with a pair of pliers then i would apply a piece of four-way ripstop nylon on top of the repaired wound and smooth that down and then paint that and feather it with some more flex- flexible epoxy and let that dry. Then I take a high-speed pneumatic uh, grinder, which is much faster than an electric one. Mm-hmm. It really spins, I think, at like 38,000, 40,000 RPMs. Okay. And you can get a real smooth, smooth finish really quick. I had a uh, what's called a slick, which is a boat building chisel that's about two and a half, three feet long, and they used to use it to like plain rough joints in a boat. and I ground that down with uh, that high speed grinder. It got it done in nothing flat. But basically I would grind that down, make it really smooth the outside of the fish. Then I would hit it with a, a primer coat, some kind of a waterproof primer. I'm not sure what it was. Ward found it somewhere. That's how Ward basically got the job because nobody knew how to paint in what circumstances sure. and have the paint actually stick. But Ward, to Ward, I think he might have worked on the Ten Commandments or something, but he had a lot of experience with a lot of different things. So he could paint underwater if he had to. Wow. So we, uh, I would do the basic paint job. Then the next morning before it left, Ward and I would do all the little final details on where all the dots went on the on the fish, and uh, send it off to, and they would get to shoot it like an hour or two later, and basically it was ready to go. And see that, that- happens over and over and over and over again because there were no stops. They eventually put some stops inside of the fish, right? But they they only opened it as much as they could, figuring out you know exactly what they could get away with without tearing the shark again because it was frustrating for them too
0: sure sure you know,
2: that every everybody was trying to find find a way to make the fish work and it just it
0: just wouldn't work it's unbelievable the amount of work that you're detailing here and i want listeners to realize that this happened day in and day out at some of these sequences so there was a whole process and there was there's a reason why when when everyone kind of Uh, We all all kind of joke about the shark is not working and all sorts of delays, but these were real problems that were happening, and Marty was right there in that if you had a tear, you can't go and keep filming because now you have a continuity error. So that has to be repaired, and then you have to go back and try it again, and that's how difficult this situation was.
2: And they were rotating the different views, the right, left, the right, left, and uh, and top view of the shark, while they were shooting one, one of the other two were being repaired, and then they would, like, send that one back, and then they'd take another one out and slaughter that, bring that one back, and it was just like this rotation of the three bodies.
0: That's unbelievable. And, uh, so they really couldn't even shoot in order. He, he, you know, Steven Spielberg or Joel, all the blocking would have to have been, okay, we'll do the left side here because the other one's being repaired, right? So Yeah,
2: they had to think it on their feet assuming that something had to be shot, they had to have something ready because there's $70,000 a day out the window if they don't have something.
0: We have a photo of you uh, working. What I'm going to use for the title card of this episode is there's a famous photo of you with the grinder working on one of the mechanical sharks. And that's what you're doing. You're smoothing out a repair, right? Is that what's going on? We see your back.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely and it's not just smoothing out a repair. That's a high-speed pneumatic grinder and that's spinning at probably 38, 40,000 rpms mm-hmm. And that's a that's a feathered finish mm-hmm. that's as smooth as shark skin. Wow And actually when Ward and I did the finish coat on the shark, we put sand into the paint so it felt like a shark skin Oh, that's
0: fantastic you guys went you guys went above and beyond and that probably also marty translated to the realism for the actors right i mean yeah. That, that, yeah that they actually could feel this thing right there it's all look at it and the way the water glistens off a rough skin is way different than if it was gleaming and and shiny right that's not a smooth shark. Wow, that's a
2: sandy shark.
0: That's amazing. I guarantee
2: you. I guarantee you. That is not a smooth skin. Oh. And that. And if you ever feel shark skin, yep. I know a lot of fishermen, and I used to catch little dogfish when I lived. Lo- I lived on the Cape Cod Canal, and I used to catch dogfish out of the canal. And a shark skin is a very specific feel. That's. <laughs>
0: That's fantastic that you guys went that that extra mile right there. You mentioned that the shark was immersed in salt water, and there were organisms, and it was getting quite nasty inside. Someone had to go inside to make repairs. Uh, but uh, but the Hollywood Effects crew members refused uh, their they, their reason. They, they had reasons and they refused to work on the shark at that point in the production as it wore on. And you were the one that said someone's got to do it. And you went inside to make those repairs.
2: When if you look at any of the pictures from Shark City and you see the, boat, the, the, the rafts are all berthed with the sharks hanging in them, mm-hmm. it's like I had to climb in there. It didn't matter if it was day or night, but somebody had to go in there and like repair the damage that was done to the shark. And it was disgusting. It smelled, if you're familiar with the ocean in New England, it smelled like extreme low tide
1: Mm -hmm.
2: next to a sewage waste treatment plant. It was just like, (laughs) it was a disgusting fetid mess. that was impossible to clean. It couldn't be sanitized. It just like you cannot sanitize the beach, right? This is like, Uh, it's a rotting mess of whatever was in that shark, whatever had been absorbed into all the joints and crevices and possibly the foam of the shark. It just was getting worse and worse and worse. And it actually was pretty disgusting to have to climb in. If you look, you can see, I could easily climb in through the mouth because I did. Many times when I was waiting for the wounds to dry, I would climb up inside of the fish and I would find that loose flesh And I would try to pull it together, uh, you know, and clamp it and, like, do the epoxy and reinforce it on the inside to try to hold it together to give it a little more support to maybe get it to last long enough to happen. But nobody even knew that was happening. I was just doing that because I was there and I was waiting for it to dry. So I may as well do something. We also have to change the teeth on the shark periodically. And basically, there are two kinds of teeth. One is a, a hard tooth. For used for chewing wood or crashing into cabin walls or into the stern so that if if it did happen to catch A tooth on camera it would actually show it chewing through something And if somebody's was in the mouth of the shark or there was any danger of somebody being close to the front of the shark right we had to switch it for soft teeth and the soft teeth were bendable and again, you could never have a tooth bend on camera. Right. So when they needed to switch out the teeth, they needed to switch out the teeth.
0: So I guess what I'm trying to what I'm trying to just zero in on here, and the point is, is that when the Hollywood, the professionals refused, their stance was, "We're not going in there. It's a it's a hazardous situation." And here comes Marty and says, "No, we're going to get this done." And that is what I believe is that shows that you are a living embodiment of how working class folk and and just normal everyday people came together to make Jaws a successful film. I know there's a lot of all that I mean there's we have to give credit where credit's due to the above-the-line names, you know, the, the the director and the producers and all that. But there's little things that had to happen in order to get those final shots or to actually make everything work. And Marty, I just I, I want to just say thank you from from all the Jaws fans around the world for what you did at that cru- those crucial moments. It was people like you that actually stepped in and said, "Let's do this." Like you, the Lynn Murphys. Well,
2: uh, well, I have to I have to really say that in no way am I a hero of Jaws. I'm just a, a carpenter guy, and basically, I was close friends with Ward, and it was really important to Ward yep. to make this movie work, and out of loyalty to him and my other coworkers, I always did the best I could, but it was just the job. I wasn't like, and I knew nobody knew at the time this movie would succeed. Right. In fact, when the movie, when the movie left the Island, they had no idea what they had. They did not know, you know, whether or not it was actually going to work. And a lot of people like who were working in the movie had a very cavalier attitude towards it. They were picking up a paycheck, They could care less. Mm -hmm. They weren't on board. And over the last 50 years, I've engaged in a lot of different projects and a lot of different startups. And in in many situations, when you have more than 100 people involved, you're actually looking at a core crew of five to 15 people. And everyone else is some form of Deadwood. Hmm. It's like in order to get a project to work, you've got to have core people that make the project work, and they can work with these other people that don't have that level of commitment. But it's not a question of being a hero. It's a question of fighting the battle, getting the battle finished, and then whoever the general is, they either won the battle or they lost the battle, but your end held up. Mm -hmm. And that's basically, that's how I I approach that and how I've approached a lot of other things in my life. It's, It's not about, who gets the medal, it's about, is the job done? Did you provide service for what you were paid for?
0: Wow, that's amazing. That's it. We can all learn from that. And it's just, that vision of you and Ward matching the spots up on the shark's snout and going over those repair patches to make sure the continuity was perfect. There's a famous photo of you, which I'm going to include in our show notes on our Telegram channel, of you in Verna Field's editing room, editing suite. Where you're actually looking at the rushes and you're matching, you're looking, your eye is actually looking for continuity at that point, right?
2: Yeah. Unfortunately, that editing machine, uh, Rick, who is her son, who's mm-hmm. sitting at the editing machine, um, it, it's like I couldn't see that close. Okay. Uh, and it was all we had to look at, but it seemed good to me. Okay. And I, I never really went up there all that much um but i got a sense a a very good sense and rick had this big box of like cut negatives that were not going to be used and it was like full of all these outtakes and i said hey could i have one of these rick and he said nope everything has to stay in that box because we may have to go through that box (laughs) and we may need to find one frame so nothing can leave this room and he said that's absolutely a law you cannot you can't even touch that stuff. So I, I picked up one of the things, and I just put it back, and I said, okay, no problem.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, and and they probably did. They needed a lot of extra little pickups and little frames here and there. Before. A
2: lot of the suspense in the movie, right up to where Verna cut it. I'm sure in the next frame, the shark's mouth tore open. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It looks like, it looks like
0: suspense but
2: it was probably the last frame they have that worked.
0: That's fantastic. <laughs> and see, so the movie was making itself. That's, that's, that's the, that's the, uh, the image that I keep having here. It's just, it's, it's really amazing. It's really amazing that you've brought this, that you're bringing this type of insight here to the Jaws obsession. Um, One last one of the last few things is the uh, we talked about Jaws timing in episode 45 where something bad may happen and cause a change or and the result is a better outcome than what was originally planned. Can you give uh, maybe one example where you were directly involved in a problem that happened that caused the change and the outcome of what appeared in the movie actually became better?
2: See, we had a lot of different sets, micro sets, call them, that were used in the movie. The bicycle scene uh, sign, the Amity Bank sign, the Fourth of July parade, Brody's house, things like that. We were supposed to get authorized by Nick Charlanzio, the auditor, every time we had anything ordered or delivered to the boathouse thing, and then the invoices would be submitted and he would pay the bill and all that stuff. But Ward wouldn't have any truck with that, basically... He knew that all these little things had to be done ahead of time. So he gave me things to do and then I gave my people things to do. And we had all these little things stashed, most of which had not ever been authorized. And when they had a problem that something wasn't working and they needed a set really quick, like that afternoon or the next morning, Ward and I had the stuff ready. So we got the Teamster truck together, took it there, installed the stuff, and had it ready, and then they continued shooting. So although we didn't change the course of the movie, Mm -hmm. we kept the things that we could do ready so that the movie could actually be made for what we could anticipate. And it's it's like trying to anticipate chaos. Good luck with that. It's like a tornado going through a lumberyard, and you think you're going to build a house, by, by tossing a box of nails into it. So it was the backup
0: plan. It was, it was, it was constantly trying to anticipate the chaos and making a backup plan in case this might happen or this might happen. And you're saying that
2: people, some people were losing their jobs as it went along. There was a couple of guys on the Island that rented the movie lead. They went and bought all the lead on the Island and then uh, they found out that it was going to be needed. So then they, because they needed it for ballast in both of the boats to yep. do the weight distribution thing, okay. So that the the boat would be on the right keel, and uh, so instead of selling them the lead, they rented it to them for a very inexpensive amount of money, but by the time they were done with the the movie, it had end up costing them a fortune. That wow. So
0: so there was people taking advantage. That's what you're saying.
2: There, there, were, there were always people trying to take advantage of what was going on. Like Ward was just pulling his hair out because we had to have materials. We had to keep the people that we had working. Sometimes we'd let people go, and then i call them back and ask them if they could come back, you know, and do some other stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, and in life, there's two ways to succeed. One is rules-based, and the other one's relationship-based. A lot of people get by, by just by, by doing rules, I've always leaned heavily on relationships, you get a lot more done with relationships than you'll ever get done with rules. And on, on JAWS, there, there were the rules people who were trying to like make everything work for them and their rules. And then there were the relationship people who wanted to get things to work because they were part of a team. And those are right. entirely two different worlds, and those worlds collided.
0: <laughs> wow, that's an amazing <laughs> dynamic. That's a that, that's that's an, that's that just blew my mind right there. That's a, that's I'm gonna have to ponder over that. that. That's an amazing amount of wisdom right there. Wow. That's
2: fantastic. Well, and, that, and when you look at um, the Z- Zanuck and Brown, they're that's the money guys. Yeah, and, and they asked the wrong questions about how things were happening, and they were very nervous about exactly what was going on. But they could, they believed in Ward because they saw what Ward was doing. Right. And at one point, uh, Steven Spielberg came down on his bicycle and he had one of the first Walkmans I've ever seen. I don't even think it was a Walkman. Somebody got it for him in Japan. Okay. So he was listening to, and he was like asking us questions about how's it going and all the rest of this stuff. And, you know, he shook everybody's hand and, you know, we didn't know who the guy was. He's the same age I'm a, sure. I am. And, you
0: were both 26, uh, right? You were both 26? Yeah. <laughs>
2: he's, he's 26 years old. He's just a kid. And he's got this Walkman. He's a pretty cool guy. And, sure. you know, we were chatting for a while about how it's all going. But it's like uh, people would come to the boathouse and there's no, it's Ward used to say, there's no such thing as an innocent visitor. It's like, if somebody's coming down here to see where we do the work, right. you have to be very careful.
0: <laughs> I say, <see>, Yeah. <laughs> Got to keep a watchful eye out.
2: Nobody's coming by. Nobody's coming to visit the guys who are doing the work because they want to say hi. <laughs> I guess, Marty,
0: that I guess that's the thing is what what this interview highlights is that there is. Uh, and, and I'm going to switch. I'm going to switch a gear here. What the interview highlights is uh, common everyday folks coming together and doing their part to see a successful outcome. And that was the same principle that your your example that you just listed, it was the same principle I used in launching the Book of Quint campaign and writing of the novel, um, where um, I believe that it was just, you know, the, the corporate Hollywood is, was sitting on their hands and uh, it was Jaws fans from around the world that came together to make this happen through the Indiegogo campaign. And then also by listening and uh, surrounding the Jaws obsession with support, um, you have... Uh, spent time with the book of Quint. And I was wondering if I could really quick, as we wrap this interview up, uh, get your thoughts on the novel and an expand and how it expands the Jaws universe inspired by the film that you worked so hard on all those years ago.
2: Well, I, um, I'm glad you asked that. Um, Actually, Ryan, it's, I actually do read a lot. I've read an awful lot during my life and occasionally I will do reviews on Amazon for different books and basically, if it's not a five-star review, uh, I won't do it. And mm-hmm. uh, what you've done is you've written a five-star book. Oh. And the thing that really is important to me is it's not necessarily about the Jaws universe. But it's about where that book fits on the bookshelf. Because Peter Benchley's book is one thing. And the movie is an entirely different thing. Right. Uh, And your book, on a standalone basis, is a Mm well-written book. You can read that book never having read Benchley's book and never having seen the movie. And the thing that's really good about it is it's not about the hero of Jaws. It's about the hero with a thousand faces. Because your book is about the thinking of the Indianapolis And the people who were on the Indianapolis, if you do any research about them, Mm -hmm. you'll know that they want that story to never go away. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk about it, but they don't want that story to ever go away. And your book does an important part of keeping that story alive so that other people will be interested in it. And if nothing else, and there are several other things, if you don't mind me saying, that are worthwhile in that book. Because uh, there is a book that's read by the military in the United States called On Killing, which is uh, it's a great book. And it's a brilliant book, but I don't recommend anybody read it uh, who doesn't want to have their mind changed about killing. Because if you're going to be a soldier, you mm-hmm. have to know that. Right. And if you're going to go to sea, and my brother was a seaman for Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and eventually ended up as the manager of marine recruitment. And he put a lot of people at sea, and he put several fishermen, friend of mine, uh, at sea uh, for Woods Hole. So the people who go to sea, they know about sharks. If If a boat goes down off the coast of Martha's Vineyard, many of those, those seamen will not put on their survival suits because mm-hmm. they're not about to get eaten alive by hammerhead sharks. They'd rather drown. Mm-hmm. And the Coast Guard won't pick them up off the boat unless they got a survival suit on. Right. And they, they aren't surprised at the number of white sharks that are off the coast and more so now than ever before, as I'm sure you well know with Turo and off the southern shore of Martha's Vineyard. Sure. There are a lot of sharks, and they're mostly hammerheads that understanding that the first part of your book is really worthwhile if for no other reason than that. Wow! But if you take a look at any library, this book belongs right next to The Old Man and the Sea, Moby Dick, uh, Jack London's seafaring books. If you look at Greek mythology, Scylla and Charbatis were Odysseus is on his way back. He's fighting a sea monster. And in order to get through that crisis, he has to feed six seamen to the, the, sea, the, the sea monster. And if you think for a second that Quint was not called by the sirens to go to the sea, and if you get past the sirens, the sirens kill themselves. But in Quint's case, he was eaten by the sea monster. So if you take a look at literature and just the story, and I know those waters pretty well. So what you did is you captured that triangle of, of ocean that would surround Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket and Amity and yeah. whatever, li- whatever creative liberties you may have taken. It's like, it's only going to add to a good story. Uh, the believability in the book of Quint, it's certainly worth a read. Now, undoubtedly people are going to have an investment one way or the other. And, and what their opinion is on what you may or may not have chosen to do in the book. And that's all well and good, but how many people who are star Wars fans have ever read Shakespeare? (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And the the, the thing is um, with literature and creativity, when you choose to become a writer of fiction, you create a field. You open a window into uh, a world, and it's your responsibility to make that world, as you see it, as authentic as possible. And there are certain things that I definitely agree with in your book and other things Oh well, maybe I don't agree, maybe I do agree. It doesn't matter because the thing is you've painted your story. And that story works. Now, the best thing about quantum mechanics is it provides great metaphors. If you look at the black hole of Quint and the black hole of that story that's peripherally focused on the Indianapolis experience, but also all of literature that involves the sea, like Shackleton's Valiant Voyage, things like that, it's like the James Webb Hubble, Hubble, like, photographs that come from space, there's something called gravitational lensing. Okay. And if there is a black hole between you and something on the other side of the black hole, you will actually see five or six different versions of what's on the other side of the black hole because the light is bending around the black hole. Right. And it's kind of a difficult thing, but gravitational lensing is one of the proofs of the of Einstein's theory of relativity. So what you've got is that black hole opening of creativity, which pulled Peter Benchley in, which pulled Steven Spielberg in, which pulled you in. And as light goes around that event, there are different versions of what's on the other side of that event. And that literally is the Jaws universe because the actual opening of creativity is solidly there. And, and that is a really important thing for everyone to understand in particular, younger children who like the story of Jaws. And it's like, I think most people who are Jaws fans knows who Brandon is in, in England. Mm-hmm. And he's the young uh, Jaws kid uh, that's Phil, Phil uh, Elric's son. And the thing is, the, that black hole of Jaws, the light bends around it. And that is the story of the Jaws universe. Everyone's got a different take on Jaws because that black hole bends everybody's imagination around it. And what they see on the other side actually isn't what's on the other side. It's what happened to the light that got bent when they were looking at it.
0: Oh, man, that's amazing. Marty, I think you just explained, you just summed up my entire last 29 months of my life. Uh, Because
2: maybe so, I thought I was going
0: crazy. I literally was. It It doesn't mean
2: you're not crazy. I tell you, Ryan, doesn't mean you're not crazy.
0: (laughs) It consumes me. I'm shaking. I can't thank you enough. I'm. I'm actually like. uh, It's unbelievable to hear your words uh, about the book. Um, in that, in that way, I've never expected that, that this interview would have uh, produced that, that, um, someone that was involved with Jaws and that your take coming from that. And as you read the book, because there was a lot that happened, the, the pressure and just the images that were coming into the door, like you just described the door being opened and it was just, uh, there was a lot of parts of that book. I don't remember writing because it was flowing. I just have to say, I kind of, I try to, I try to explain it to people. I don't feel I wrote it. I feel I was given it and I'm just presenting it to the world.
2: That's see that, that is the creative process. When you, when you go from nothing, absolutely nothing to a finished created product that you created, there's more involved than just your effort. It's like, look at Van Gogh. Yeah. It's like, he, he could not stop, and he never knew what he was doing. It's like, look at Steven Spielberg starting that movie and then leaving Martha's Vineyard just before they blew up the shark head, yeah. not knowing if he had a movie, not knowing if he could tell a story. Look at Rick Dreyfus complaining about it all a month later on live TV saying that it had ruined his career. Wow. And then a year later, you've got a $400 million blockbuster that nobody saw coming. What part of that did Steven Spielberg plan? He almost lost his job and his career.
0: Unbelievable.
2: And and here it was, all these other people, Verna Fields, John Williams, Rick Fields, Ward Welton, Mm. all these people did their job they didn't expect it would be a $400 million blockbuster and probably never really benefited from it as such. And it's, it's just, it's like, and then you come along and you, you look into the night sky and you see a version of Jaws on the other side of a black hole. And you're not sure what you see. Because there's five versions of it around that black hole, Mm -hmm. but you know it's on the other side and you want to tell somebody about it. Have at it, my man.
0: Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Marty Milner, thank you so much. I'm I'm this just made my entire year. And 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 it's only fitting that this is the last show of 2022 of what a hectic year this was for the myself and the Jaws obsession and all that. And going into 2023. This is the uh, the greatest gift, and I, I can't thank you enough for what you've done for me here for with this interview, for the listeners, but also for your review of the Book of Quint. That just made my year. Thank you so much.
2: You're very welcome, Ryan. Have a, a great day and a happy new year.
0: Absolutely. You too. very special thanks and happy new year wishes to Marty Milner for his appearance. His words of history, wisdom, and advice mean so much. I'm still at a loss for words after hearing his review of the book of Quint. Uh, from the writing and to the reading, it's an, it's been an experience, and now that experience continues with such a review from Marty. That's one of the beautiful results from everything that's happened here over the show and the writing of the bulk, the bulk of the writing of the book in this past year. Marty Milner is a special soul and I have had the privilege to reach into his orbit and feel that light. What an amazing journey this has been and it continues on into 2023. My goal is to make sure every one of you listening has access to the book of Quint so you can share in this experience. I will not rest until it is so. I can promise you that. For the latest on what is going on with the Book of Quint, please follow the links in the description of this broadcast. Follow the book on Instagram at bookofquint, or you can go to jawsob.com or bookofquint.com for a list of contacts and news. The official coffee of the Jaws Obsession, the Cracked Bean Roastery in East Syracuse, New York, still has some books for sale over there, and they do ship domestically in the United States or you can just go into the shop over there if you're in the city and you can go pick one up. Also, a bag of coffee with the book is not a bad way to kick off this new year. You can find links to the cracked bean in the description as well. To all of you out there in the Jaws Obsession, I wish you all a happy new year. We have a lot of work ahead of us in 2023 and episode 51 will be the start. We still are on the Peter Benchley timeline and that's what we're gonna focus on. Thanks for all your support this year and your time in listening to this broadcast without you, this would not have been possible. I thank you. And with that, farewell and adieu, and show me the way to go home.